And thank goodness we have Plan B with Rebecca Davis back again. Well, Rebecca, you you and your wife have a seven seven month old son now. That is correct. And it's a heck of a responsibility, as Pippa was saying when she was talking to Sam Cowan about her book about the Parktown experience. Uh, Pippa saying, "I've got a thirteen year old boy in my house, and it's bringing a boy into this world, into this society, is not easy." No. Especially given that horrific story you just told, John. I mean, I think that's the thing about um, parenthood, that it forces you to, to take in that kind of a story in a much more personal way. You know, normally I would listen to you say that and I would feel enormous empathy for you. But um, the minute you become a parent, you start considering, you know, what does this mean for, for my child, for my son? And I think there's something about the ways in which your business sort of opened up in very exciting but also terrifying ways that really characterizes new parenthood as an experience. Can, can we just um, go back a bit, Rebecca, on the adoption process, which it, it took a little longer than you and Haji would have hoped, I think. But uh, to my knowledge, you are very positive about the process. The adoption process for us was relatively smooth, John. You know, you hear of people... Uh, entering the process and then uh, waiting to be allocated a, a baby for years and years. For us, the whole process took about 18 months. Um, I think that perhaps if I had to reshape things with kind of an omniscient <laughs> ability, I probably would not have opted to adopt in the middle of a pandemic, which presents certain you know unique challenges on its own. But uh, that aside... Um, I can't complain. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's, adoption is always tricky in, in, in many different ways. You're really forced to confront your abilities as a prospective parent in terms of what you think you can deal with and so forth. Um, but as far as, you know, the bureaucratic aspects of it go, we, we, were, were, we felt like we were treated very, very, very well and very smoothly. And the fact that you're a same-sex couple played no role at all in the process. It's hard to say, John, because um, the nature of adoption is often that, or usually, depending on the circumstances of the arrangement, that prospective parents will choose uh, an adopted family that they feel most drawn to. And for that reason, you produce a kind of manifesto of who you are and etc. So it is possible, of course, that um, other parents would have looked at that and rejected it. But you certainly have no knowledge of it from your side. So, yeah, certainly as a same-sex couple, as an interracial couple, we were we, we had no evidence that, that that in any way counted against us, which I think is fantastic, and as it should be, of course. I have seen photographs of you with Miles, so the, the the love between the two of you and the light and the laughter between the two of you is blindingly obvious in those photographs. What, what did you? What were your feelings when you looked down on this this young boy who was going to be your child for the first time? Gosh, John, it's really. I mean, for one thing, I think we were the first adults he'd seen without a mask for he was born in November but um, for several months he had been in a temporary home before we adopted him and um, 
there, all the caregivers were wearing masks responsibly all the time. So I think for him to see an an, an unmasked adult face is probably something quite strange, which is a crazy thing to think about. Um, he's the most beautiful little boy. I mean, he's just got, you've seen his smile. You can deny him yeah. nothing when he smiles, unfortunately. I can only hope he uses these powers for good in the long, in the long run. Um, incredibly easygoing little guy. And the whole process is, you know, kind of insane, John. Um, thinking about this, my wife and I were discussing it because there's a sense in which there's nothing you don't know about parenthood going into it these days. I mean, we're not living in Victorian England, you know. There's no mystery about the fact that you'll be up all night and changing nappies, etc. But at the same time, it's literally impossible to explain how completely your existence is upended by the arrival of a baby until it is. Until your existence is upended by the arrival of a baby. It, it, it is, I mean, if I had to give advice to people who are expecting a baby or... or in the adoption process or anything similar. Now, I would say just for a year, you should wake up at 5 a.m. and be on your feet till 7 p.m. as a form of kind of stamina training. And I wish I had done that because now perhaps I would not be in the physical condition I am. Because that's another discovery, John. The um, toll that parenting takes on one's physical attractiveness is, I'm afraid, devastating, at least in our case. (laughs) It has taken only a fortnight for me to transform from a youthful stunner into a withered old hag. I've seen the photographs, recent photographs of you and Miles, and withered old hag is about the most obvious description. <laughs> Ridiculous. Um, somebody wants to know whether you adopted privately or through uh, government, a social work department. It's a private agency, but they do, they work. Um, I mean, it, it's a... I'm actually not sure quite how to answer that question. I mean, it's a, it's a private agency but it works with government so it's not the case that this is some kind of privately arranged adoption through someone we know or anything it still has to go through the the government structures and social workers etc but um you confessed confessed is it something that one confesses you acknowledged to me in an email that this two-week period because so much of your attention has been on on miles you haven't done the the daily following of all the minutiae and all the stories and this study and that study and this death toll and that hospital admission toll and it had it had enabled you in those few moments where you were capable of thought it had enabled you to take some steps back and think more broadly, perhaps more deeply, about this pandemic. Yes, in as much as I've been able to, because as you rightly say, my brain is not perhaps what it, what it used to be. As evidenced by the fact that last week I contacted you on Wednesday and said I couldn't possibly do Plan B, and you kindly pointed out that it was not Thursday. But um, yes, I have been I'm glad able it was to, kindly pointed out. <laughs> um, I have been thinking a lot. I mean, thinking a lot about COVID-19. And, you know, the question that I see a lot on social media is, why actually, why are we as a society taking this disease so seriously? Why have we shut down the workings of our society for this disease? And it's a question, John, that is often posed, I feel, by people who have ulterior motives, who in some way are kind of asking it in a malicious or questionable way. But I think it is a valid question. And actually, it's one that is, as far as I can see, almost never addressed. And I I researched this. I Googled. I looked internationally. Is there anyone saying, you know, these are the reasons why we should be taking this disease so much more seriously than, than other forms of danger to society? And there really wasn't much. But then I did 
kind of did my own research on and tried to think my way around it. And for me, one potential answer I found is that I think sometimes in South Africa we have the impression that death is all around us, ever-present, around every corner, and certainly that is not helped by constant news bulletins. I mean, we just heard about that awful assassination, etc. But the truth is, and perhaps this, this will sound crass when I put it like this, but in my view at least, fewer people die annually in South Africa than perhaps we imagine, or certainly that I imagined. So, for instance, for the year 2016, which is, I think, the most recent cause of death report I could find, Around about 500,000 people in South Africa die annually of all causes. That includes deaths, I mean, murders, road accidents, and disease. So if you can, and that figure appears to be decreasing, by the way, year on year as um, mortality increases, etc. I mean, sorry, the what do you call it? Life expectancy. So what we're saying there then is that if in the most estimates 40,000 South Africans were to die of COVID-19, that would account for almost one in 10 deaths this year, which is a tremendous figure, actually. And you, were, well, I certainly was overestimating the extent to which people die of other diseases. So, for instance, we all know about the, the kind of twin pandemics of TB and HIV, and I, we shouldn't understate the toll that they take. But at the same time, we have around 29,000 people dying annually of TB, around 22,000 people dying annually of HIV. I mean, that's would amount to almost half the death toll taken from this one single disease in this year if those estimates come to pass. And I thought that was quite interesting, John. I don't know if other people were um, laboring under the same misapprehension that I was, that other death figures were much higher. And then, of course, other than that, there's the fact that unlike these diseases I've been talking about, TB and HIV, which have very, very long disease courses, the, the, the disease cause for COVID is very, very rapid, as we now know. You know, you, you can be healthy and in a matter of weeks you can be dead. So for that reason, there's this obvious immediate burden on the health system. It does not spread out from individual to individual in a way that HIV or cancer or TB would be. There will be people hitting these hospitals, as we see, all at once. And that is a disaster. And we're seeing that disaster now. There's the fact that it is highly contagious. And I mean, really... For a fatal disease, it's pretty much more contagious than anything you can think of, but it is also preventable. We're not talking about a Chernobyl nuclear fallout where you know, everyone within the vicinity will die. There are steps that can be taken by government and have been to try to, to lower the fatalities. And also, John, this is something that I keep thinking about. COVID-19 can kill anyone, and that sounds sort of trite, but it's actually relatively rare for a disease. It's not a lifestyle disease. You know, so much of our conversations about disease still tend to be shrouded in blame. But this is a disease you can't contract through sexual intercourse, through drugs, through overeating, through, you know, through poverty even. It is a disease that, quote unquote, blameless middle class people can contract as well as poor people living in terrible circumstances. And I think that factor as well is something that renders it both frightening and also something that perhaps may lead governments internationally to take it more seriously because we do still have this blame attached to disease that does not come into play so much with COVID-19. Rebecca Davis, thank you very, very much indeed. And it is lovely to have you back. Rebecca had another story about the number of sniffs which um, distinct sniffs and the uh, the meaning of each distinct sniff. We're going to have to keep that one for next week.